Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. A recent report on income inequality reveals that the top 10% of Americans average more than nine times as much income as the bottom 90%. In his latest book, John F. Wasik addresses the current economic crisis by looking to the past and, and studying President Abraham Lincoln's policies and programs for infrastructure, public education, and more. His book, Lincolnomics, How President Lincoln Constructed the Great American Economy, is published by Diversion Books and Mr. Wasik to our show now. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Leonard. You begin your book by pointing out that Lincoln's legacy is a lot greater than his great speeches and his role as the great emancipator and the commander-in-chief during the Civil War. Well, those are pretty major achievements, but you say that he was our greatest builder and doesn't get the credit for that? That's true. You know, I, I always thought, you know, in seeing Lincoln, you know, through the Gettysburg Address and the inaugurals and all of his leadership during the Civil War, that he was this iconic figure. But when I started doing this research, I discovered that he was our foremost economic architect. He had done so much uh, work in terms of thinking about infrastructure, building infrastructure, and really tying it into economic equality uh, that it, it really opened my eyes. Well, there have been nearly 15,000 books, <clears throat> excuse me, written about Lincoln, the most written about any individual, second only to Jesus. Why do you think the picture you've given us of him in this book has been largely overlooked? Well, I think that most of what we know about Lincoln is uh, really derived from uh, his Civil War um, experiences, uh, how he led the country, and, and what really happened to form this amazing man. But uh, I chose to use an economic lens in looking at him, uh, one that, that really uh, took another look at, at social justice, uh, environmental justice to some extent, uh, and, and what really happened up until the time he became president. And of course, during his presidency was, was incredibly um, amazing. But it, it's, it's something that really hadn't been explored in the literature that I could really see. He was the model of the self-made man. How much do you think his abused childhood, the fact that he didn't study at an Ivy League school, but was largely self-educated and had a complicated work history, shaped his views? Well, this is the most revealing part of him, I thought, when I started to look back at his experience uh, being a virtual indentured servant to his father. He took uh, two flatboat trips, which could have been the model for a Huckleberry Finn story. Um, and he discovered that not only was slavery evil and immorally um, tainted, but also that uh, people in, in rural parts of the country and in every part of the country uh, needed to have access to markets. They needed the infrastructure to get their goods to markets. And, and he really had this perspective early on in his 20s. Uh, and, and, it, and it really uh, opened a whole nother way of seeing Lincoln as, as this economic thinker. And, and I think that when we, we go back to that and, and what his early work was uh, focused on, and it wasn't slavery at first, uh, then, it, then it gives us a whole nother perspective of where we're at today and where we need to be. You write, and I'm quoting, he did not buy into the toxic view that coming from somewhere else, 
speaking some language other than English or having skin that is not white means you should not have access to opportunities of upward mobility offered to white English-speaking Americans. That, that uh, could apply to the situation today. In fact, it a lot have... of what you write about in this book could apply to the situation today. Well, I had been working on this for, for several years, and I, you know, I'd, I'd done four books on infrastructure previously. And I always uh, view these through the perspective of, well, where did we come from? With Lincoln, he did come from poverty. He did come from very little education. Uh, he achieved quite a bit as an autodidact. And, and also, he discovered the world, and he discovered a, a, a new vision of the world that that involved what they called in 1830s internal improvements. That is, if you created a better transportation and infrastructure, you could help a lot of people all over the country ascend what he called the economic ladder. And that, that was one of our, our core American principles. And, and Lincoln built on that. Did you coin the term Lincolnomics? Um, well, it had been out there. I, I would love to say that I, I did coin it. Uh, but uh, it's 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 a principle, really. Like, how do we build a country that's that's fair and just and promotes uh, economic progress, equality, and opportunity? So that's that's really what Lincolnomics uh, means to me. Um, in, the, you know, in the book, you say it means compassion in politics and capitalism. It does indeed, because Lincoln, you know, uh, you know, he received letters from Karl Marx, and he was aware of his writing. Oh uh, and, and Marx did make an attempt to communicate with him, uh, but he wasn't a Marxist. He was very much uh, a believer in the power of capitalism. Of course, a lot of the things that he signed in the law led to runaway uh, Gilded Age robber baron capitalism, which, which I also really uh, detail in the book. But uh, the basic principle was, you know, if you did have some sort of economic footing uh, that was equal to everybody, then you had a chance at, at really raising your, your station in life. As you mentioned earlier, Lincoln's father was very hard on him and placed hard work on the farm above education and reading. And you write that, quote, in his later work as an attorney, Lincoln's deep sense that he had been abused as a child translated into an intimate identification with clients of all identities who had been in similar positions of abuse and disenchantment and disenfranchisement. Um, and obviously that carried off into uh, his political career. It did because he had this keen sense of, of what social justice meant on a deeply personal uh, level. His father disparaged him from getting an education. He only had about a year of formal education. Um, there, was, there was one story that he actually burned some of Lincoln's books. Uh, Lincoln had to seek mentorship from people in the community who had books, who could give him books. He he really couldn't afford very much in terms of uh, getting the books he needed. And then he studied for the law on his own. Uh, but before that, he had this sense that he needed to discover more about the world. He needed book learning. Uh, he needed to uh, get beyond being a, a rail splitter and a, an indentured servant. And he failed at a lot of things before he uh, became a lawyer. He was uh, a surveyor. He was uh, he ran two stores, both of which went belly up. He uh, was uh, he tried to be a steamboat pilot and a flatboatman, and, and and did all these things. And and you know, to varying degrees, it it shaped his worldview. And and it's important to keep that in mind. 
Was he the first president who wasn't a child of privilege? That's hard to say. I mean, uh, you, you go back really far. I mean, the founding fathers obviously were men of great wealth. They were slaveholders, um, and they didn't want to relinquish that wealth. They went to the greatest, best schools of the time. Right, well. and, and they had access to tutors. Uh, you know, Thomas Jefferson had his, his own personal tutor, and that's that was higher education uh, back in in the early days of the Republic and before. But Lincoln, you know, really had to t teach himself uh, what he needed to know and, and what he experienced on the circuit, um, being a lawyer and, and being an assemblyman in Illinois, uh, really formed his, not his opinions, but really his, his economic, his social justice philosophy, and of course, his later opposition to slavery. And you write that his economic philosophy was both aspirational and practical. And at its core is the belief that building infrastructure and promoting technology, economic opportunity, and education were the keys to America's future. Was he alone in that kind of thinking at that time? Not really. And, and what really molded his early political economic philosophy uh, was Henry Clay's uh, platform called the American System. And that provided uh, some state funding for infrastructure and, and really the idea that you really couldn't have economic progress without decent canals at the time, uh, ports and later railroads. Um, so Lincoln embraced that philosophy wholeheartedly. In fact, his first platform running for the Illinois General Assembly was to build a canal. And he later actually um, was the urban planner of a town that was supposed to sit on the canal at the conjunction of, of the canal and the Illinois River, which would have given access to his hometown of Springfield to the Mississippi River system. Uh, neither the canal nor the town were ever built, but it, it stuck in Lincoln's mind that if you did uh, build access points to shipping goods and, and, and linking you know, the far-flung reaches of America to the major ports, uh, in this case, St. Louis, uh, New Orleans, and of course, the Erie Canal was open by the time he got into politics. So that, that created access to, to uh, saltwater ports on the East Coast. So it was, he was thinking really globally. Do you see any irony in the fact that members of his party today are opposing much of President Biden's infrastructure proposals? Well, I, I kind of make a distinction in uh, one of my last chapters that if we are to refer to the party of Lincoln, uh, that, the, that the true meaning of that would be uh, a, a really pronounced focus on economic equality and social justice. Uh, the current Republican Party doesn't represent that. In fact, when the Republican Party was formed and Lincoln uh, stopped being a Whig, um, their, their focus was on uh, ending slavery. So that was, was a core principle that a lot of, of the GOP has, has forgotten. Well, he was rather late to uh, the concept of total abolition. Um, so, in fact, uh, a number of people who were uh, in his government were far more committed than he was. It was only uh, during the war when he, well, that's a whole other story, but uh, the Emancipation Proclamation, all those other things were actually seen as politically expedient at the time. Well, here's here's a lot of, there's a lot of ironic connections here. So one of his earliest allies, in fact, was Stephen Douglas. 
the author of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which supported popular sovereignty for the expansion of slavery. Um, and and there, was, there was a lot of sentiment in Illinois as well, in his part of the state, for keeping slavery, for the Fugitive Slave Act. So he was, he was always conscious of this undercurrent that maybe the people who were you know, not quite as base would not be embracing pure abolition. Uh, later, of course, he came around to uh, 13th Amendment. But, you know, at, at first, you have to read the Lincoln-Douglas debates very carefully. And Stephen Douglas had painted uh, what he called Lincoln a black Republican as a radical, and, and Lincoln was not. Um, it was just a way of smearing him. Uh, and, and you have to say, you know, what was Lincoln talking about then? He was you know, in that first debate, and, and this kind of shocked me that Lincoln really was talking more about economic equality in the context of ending slavery than anything else. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org is John F. Wasik, W-A-S-I-K. His latest book, this is your 19th, I think, is Lincolnomics, how President Lincoln Constructed the Great American Economy, published by Diversion Books. Uh, how did he earn the nickname the Rail Splitter? Well, <laughs> you know, when he was running for president, they wanted to promote this image of, you know, the Western backwoodsman. Uh, and he actually did split rails uh, for money, among other many other things. Uh, he would do anything he could to, to, to raise money. Uh, for uh, what he wanted to do. Um, and one of those things was farming, he would do rail splitting. He would, he would you know, he was a postmaster for, for a short time. Um, he tried his hand at being a merchant, um, but they wanted to convey this image that, you know, here's, here's this genuine American born in a log cabin. In fact, um, I saw one of his, a rec, a sort of a uh, a recreation of one of his campaign vehicles, which was literally a, a log cabin on wheels. This is parked right outside his home in Springfield with his picture on it. So that was that was the the brand building, if you will, in 21st century terms. He, he was a proponent of building a railway system throughout his career as a young state legislator, as a lawyer, and as president. Why do you think uh, infrastructure was so important to him? Well, this is something that uh, really came to the fore um, after what they call the era of good feelings, which is roughly the 1830s. Uh, the, the emphasis initially was on building canals, uh, steamboats dominated canals and rivers, and, and those were essentially the interstates at the time. And there was actually a sentiment against railroads for, for a bit of our history, because it was so expensive. I mean, you literally had to make the steel to build the rail that was expensive. You had to cut down all these trees to build the ties. You needed spikes. I mean, the capacity and the technology to do this, to scale up, really didn't come into play until the, well into the 1840s. And a lot of, and there was actually a proposal before Lincoln proposed this canal to, to build a railroad, which he also voted on uh, to create the Illinois Central Railroad, again, with Stephen Douglas. Uh, it made, Douglas fabulously wealthy because the railroad ended up in Chicago where Douglas owned land. Uh, and Lincoln, of course, defended the IC uh, a few times uh, and of course made money on fees from being uh, you know, a defender of their interests. So he, he saw the connections. And, and again, there was a great sentiment even in the 1840s to build a transcontinental railroad, which Lincoln had 
is one of his planks running for president the first time. Uh, and he eventually signed the Transcontinental Railway uh, Laws, Pacific Railway Acts in 1862, which literally uh, gave the land and created the funding for that system. Uh, but it, it took a tremendous amount of political capital to get that going. And, you know, the South was opposed to it because of the routing would have gone through, you know, Illinois, through the northern states. Um, and, and actually, Jefferson Davis opposed it back when before he was president of the Confederacy. So there, were, there was a lot of tension there. There was a lot of um, feeling that this would disproportionately benefit the North, which, of course, it did eventually. Uh, but that was part of the, the historical background. But also connected uh, the, uh, the established, the original colonies to all of this new territory that had been added. They were um, only six weeks separated Lincoln's signing of the Pacific Railroad Act and the Homestead Act. Were they linked? Well, yes. I mean, because the idea was that if you could give land, and again, I have to add a very important footnote, a lot, 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 if not most of the land was appropriated by native from Native Americans, caused great tragedy and, and horrible bloodshed. Um, he did want people to have some sort of economic independence, and that was some way of doing it. Um, so you needed to get a, get them there easily. Uh, traveling from the Mississippi River to the West Coast was miserable for the railroad, um, and of course, they needed land. If they farmed it, they could keep it and pay a small fee. Uh, also, the in 1862, he signed the Morrill Act, which established land-grant colleges. Again, the federal government didn't have the funds to literally build these colleges, but it had the land. So it gave the land away. Um, colleges could farm it. They could sell it. They could lease it um, or create the, the great state university system we have today. But wasn't a downside to the Morrill Act that granting land to states meant taking land from Native Americans, most oh, often illegally? No question. In fact, I included uh, a very uh, incisive study from the Pulitzer Center that showed uh, to the extent to which this, this one law took land away from Native Americans or never compensated them for the land. Uh, and, and that's a continuing concern and, and one that colleges are, are still addressing. Uh, for example, Georgetown uh, invested in the slave trade and they're still trying to um, compensate um, the, the heirs or the, the people who were, whose families were enslaved. So these, these are all issues that we're still dealing with. And, and you write that the grants raised $17.7 .7 million for university endowments with unsold lands valued at an additional 5.1 million adjusted for inflation, that sum is roughly half a billion dollars stolen from Native Americans? That's that's probably an, an underestimate. I mean, mm -hmm. um, you know, back in the 19th century, the largest source of capital was of course land. Um, and, you know, if you deprive people of the source of capital and, you know, it was, it was extensive, uh, the amount of land that was taken. I, you know, I saw one estimate that was at least a billion acres or something. I don't know if that's mm. uh, accurate, but it, it's, it was, uh, was quite frightening as a large number. Well, actually, the, the idea for land-grant colleges, didn't it begin with Professor Jonathan Baldwin-Turner? It did, and this is a, a real interesting backstory, Leonard. Um, Turner knew Lincoln as a young man, uh, he was uh, an abolitionist 
uh, from Lincoln's part of the state, uh, really founded uh, a lot of different programs. Uh, he was an Easterner at Illinois College, which was in Jacksonville, where Stephen Douglas came from. Um, and he really came up with this idea of what he called the Industrial University um, in the 1830s and later became uh, the land-grant template. Um, and of course, uh, Justin Morrill, who was uh, the Vermont senator, eventually got it through, had proposed it in 1858. Buchanan vetoed it. Uh, came back to Lincoln and he signed it. But uh, Turner was was pretty much the brainchild of it and had talked to Lincoln and Douglas. And they both thought it was a great idea. And then when Lincoln became president, he he um, got it going. So the, the Marl Act of 1862 provided grants of land to states to finance the establishment of colleges specializing in agriculture and the me mechanic arts. Um, Weren't there already a few land-grant colleges operating before the Civil War? Michigan Agricultural there... College, which is now Michigan State, the Agricol Agricultural College of Pennsylvania, which is now Penn State? Right. There were a handful of them. But the key to this uh, particular law was that it took federal land and, and said, okay, states, you figure out where you wanna, what you want to do with this land. Uh, you could sell it off. You can continue to farm it to create income. Um, so it, the principle here is there was a federal program to do this, uh, to create this, and, and really the control was up to the states. So it was, it was an interesting model. What was the course of study at a, a land-grant college? Well, at first it was very much focused on agricultural research. And I read some of the original proposals that Justin Morrill and, and Turner had written. Uh, the biggest problem in, in the 19th century was that the fertility of the land was being exhausted to a huge degree. Um, for example, tobacco farming just sucked the, the, the nutrients out of the soil. So, you know, the, the conventional wisdom was like, well, how do you deal with this? Well, you just buy more land or you expand. Um, and that wasn't the way to do it. So they didn't really understand soil science. So what these uh, colleges did is they promoted research and development uh, in terms of uh, agricultural science. Also, uh, you mentioned the mechanic art, arts. That was really the, um, the germ for engineering schools. So all the land-grant colleges eventually uh, formed engineering schools. And, the, and Lincoln was a great advocate of invention, of engineering, of technology. Uh, he's our only president to hold a patent. He invented a boat. Um, and he really, uh, when I discovered some of these obscure speeches he had in 1858, 59, uh, he was very much focused on, on, on innovation. I think he was our innovator in chief. Well, you say he invented a boat. Uh, it was a, a, a boat that could float in shallow waters. Uh, was it ever built? A model of it was built and, and it's in the Smithsonian and he actually, had a friend in Springfield, Illinois, build it for him. Uh, he brought it to Washington. He got his patent during his only term in Congress. Um, and, he, and he came home. And, and of course, you know, by that time, uh, railroads were really taken off. This was 1848. Um, and there wasn't really a need for it because you didn't have to go through shallow waters anymore. You just get on the railroad eventually. Um, but it, it was it was pretty clever. It had these sort of poles where you could lift up the boat and there were some uh, buoyant um, uh, chambers that could be inflated and you just pop over a, a shallow area and 
uh, it was it's it was a pretty interesting project. Was Lincoln's support of railroads also based on his own experiences? Because you describe him uh, traveling an awful lot by boat. <laughs> if he was going from Illinois to Washington, it meant a, getting on a number of different boats and and traveling overland a little bit as well. Oh, it was very difficult uh, prior to the, you know, the railroad network. He would have to go up to the Illinois River and down the Mississippi and then down the Ohio, then the Ohio, take a stagecoach. Uh, and it was just, it was arduous. It would took, took weeks uh, for him to get there and then for him to get back. And then, you know, he was, he was with his family and then Mary was with him uh, on the way back from his uh, congressional term. He actually came through. Uh, the Illinois and Michigan Canal, which connected Chicago to the Illinois River, which literally created the city. Again, something uh, he had advocated uh, with Stephen Douglas in his uh, General Assembly career. But, um, you know, to make these routes uh, cleaner, more direct, um, you know, the railroad system was essential. Um, he also believed that universal public education was essential for the country obviously based on his own life experiences, uh, was what was the prevailing thought about public education at the time? Well, it wasn't a widely held idea. And, and you know, you have to keep in mind there was, even today, there's a certain caste uh, system sort of view of this that, you know, only the, the rich or the well-to-do or the landowners could afford an education, which meant you know, they could go to college if there was a college nearby, or they go to private college or an Eastern college or, you know, were tutored. So it was very much um, a vestige of privilege. But Lincoln said, you know, why don't we make this available to everybody so that, you know, anybody can become a lawyer, an engineer, an accountant, uh, you know, or an educated farmer. Um, so this was part of his economic equality ethos and he deeply believed in it because he 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 always felt inadequate because he didn't have an education and even his own cabinet um, thought he was a, a backwards rube and and really disliked him i uh, thought he was a was a real i mean when he first met edwin stanton he was on a trial with him uh defending a patent for the mccormick reaper and um you know, Stanton pretty much called him a baboon and humiliated him. Uh, so it was, you know, and he became his secretary of war. So he eventually won these people over and they, they you know, his, his respect was certainly earned, but uh, nobody really thought highly of Abraham Lincoln when he got into office. It's amazing how so many of these issues uh, are with us again. Maybe they've always been there, but the whole matter of, of, uh, paying for education has become a major political situation these days. And, and it's, it's one of the, the great crutches of, of our society right now is that, you know, and I, and I discussed this in a later chapter, sort of roughly under the heading of what would Lincoln do? You know, there's more than $1.7 trillion in student debt. And, and how, do we, how do we resolve that? I mean, there's any number of ways to view this. But it is, it's an economic burden of you carrying this debt in, into the adulthood and some are carrying it into retirement. Um, you, you can't advance, you know, you, you have this thing hanging over you, you can't discharge it in bankruptcy court. Um, you know, it's, it's just there. And, you know, I, I think the law should be changed to 
to reduce this burden. Uh, and certainly there are many, many discussions about it, but we need to push that forward. Did land-grant colleges help to level the playing field in education? How did they differ from the private colleges that have been established in the 19th century, like Harvard, Princeton, and Yale? Well, for one thing, they had a very broad-based view of education. So if you wanted to study the mechanical arts, let's say you wanted to improve the technology uh, that made you a better farmer, you could do it. Um, and most of the old uh, Eastern liberal arts colleges, you know, they, they focused on the classics and, um, you know, philosophers from Greece and Rome and things like that. And, you know, it's solid classical education, but to move ahead in, in the 19th century, the 20th century and the 21st, you really needed an expansion of knowledge and um, uh, an institution that would support research and would use that research to, to better society and, and create new ideas and technologies. And, and that's, that's what Lincoln had in mind. And it, and it was a very broad-based approach. Uh, and, it, and I should say that the moral acts were actually expanded well into the 20th century uh, to include uh, Native American education, historically Black colleges and universities, um, extensions of those land-grant colleges, uh, the, the famous extension programs that are still in, in, in use today. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live on WBAI.org. Honest Abe Lincoln, he set the people thinking. He wouldn't lie to you and he wouldn't lie to me. There was trouble, he was tried, but the Lord was by his side. The tall American was the man of destiny. Down to Washington he went to become the president and pass a law for all the world to see. And they're looking to us now, long ago we showed them how. Lincoln wanted every kind of people to be free. We are back with John Wasik, who uh, has published 19 books, including Lightning Strikes, about the life and work of Nikola Tesla. So um, he's been interested in, uh, in technology, and uh, so I, I suspect that, um, that Lincoln would have driven a Tesla if he were, <laughs> uh, were alive today. Uh, the book that we are discussing is Lincolnomics, How President Lincoln Constructed the Great American Economy. It, it's published by Diversion Books. Uh, getting back to the, um, the Homestead Act, uh, wouldn't one of the, uh, the reasons for pushing uh, for uh, railroads and, and improved uh, infrastructure uh, to eliminate the economic isolation of small rural towns while allowing non-coastal cities to participate in trade and, and act as commercial hubs? Well, Lincoln really saw this as, as part of his vision that if you had the infrastructure uh, that connected all these communities that were producing, say, grain or corn or, or whatever, um, then that would lift the economic um, situation of, of farmers and people who were trying to survive in the middle of Nebraska or Kansas or, or wherever they were. Um, and, and this was part of his, his real, really thorough plan to promote economic progress. 
Uh, otherwise, you know, the 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 situation before national infrastructure was that you know you were pretty much uh, limited to what you could sell in in your area, uh, and you didn't have access to global markets uh, like say San Francisco or New Orleans, um, and and you really couldn't really expand your enterprise. So he was always interested in that. Do you think that later presidents who were interested in promoting um, expansion of the infrastructure, like Eisenhower with highways, do you think that they were even aware of this this part of American history? I think that they were, uh, although there was always a tension. And this, this is perhaps one of the biggest surprises to me, is that a lot of sentiment was really geared against national funding of infrastructure. I found a, um, an annual message by James Monroe, one of the founding fathers, that said, look, we can't do this. It's not in the Constitution. And subsequent uh, presidents, most of them from the South, would say, look, we'd love to do this, but you know, let's, let's, the states, let's have the states control this. Let's have the states fund it. Well, the states never had enough capital to do what they needed to do. They certainly couldn't create a national railroad system. They certainly couldn't create you know, uh, large-scale public works projects. Um, and, and they just, you know, the, the capital wasn't there. So you really needed somebody to step up and say, look, this is a national issue. Uh, and, and Lincoln, even in, in 1847, 1848, some of his longest speeches were on creating this national infrastructure and funding it. Uh, he had really strong opposition to uh, President Polk for getting it into the Mexican War. It's the imperialist uh, project. And uh, he said, look, we should be investing in ports and canals. And he would mention the Illinois and Michigan Canal. Uh, and there was a huge convention in Chicago, 1847 where they weren't even talking about railroads. They were saying, look, um, we, we think that if we expand these public amenities, it will help all the states. Of course, you know, there was the whole states' rights argument. John C. Calhoun uh, said, no, we don't want this. You know, and, and a lot of the interests were, in, were really geared towards preserving and expanding slavery. So the, there was always this tension. What happened during the, the Civil War with the Confederacy? How did the infrastructure issues affect the relationship between the Union and the Confederacy? Well, there were two interesting things going on. Um, one, the, the, the really cutting edge technology wasn't even railroads, it was the telegraph. Uh, that revolutionized, of course, communication. Uh, and Lincoln used it extensively. He was the first president to send and receive a telegraph message. Uh, and he did it. Uh, from Washington to San Francisco, which you think at the time is that's pretty amazing. Um, the, the North actually had the most extensive um, logistics and railroad network. And, and that certainly made a difference where you could ferry supplies and, and meat and all sorts of material from Chicago right to the conjunction of the Ohio and the Mississippi where U.S. Grant could supply uh, his army going into Tennessee and, and later all the way to Appomattox. So was was that important? Of course it was. In terms of railroad miles, the, the number of miles up north versus the miles down south, there was no comparison. So you could move goods, you could move troops, you could move cannons, whatever, a lot faster. Uh, and, and of course, when they had, you know, finally reconciled to the fact that the first 
generals and on for the union were incompetent and put grant and sherman at the head of the the pack then that of course made a difference too but uh, you you're making another point which is uh, the south's opposition to uh, investment in infrastructure wound up hurting it during the civil war i guess we can be grateful but aren't there hidden costs when government fails to update infrastructure Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's no question about it. I mean, the the estimates vary, but there's like $6 trillion worth of repairs that need to be done to just what we have now. Roads, bridges, tunnels, um, you know, railroad freight systems. Um, and then, you know, there's the $2 trillion American jobs plan uh, that President Biden has proposed and is, it is really coming up against a lot of opposition. So, you know, let, let's consider this, and I, I kind of did the math on this, and I don't know how accurate I am, but the interstate system, you know, 40,000 miles at its inception, 1956, um, roughly, if you inflation adjusted, it was a $600 billion project. I mean, that's it, probably on the low side. But, you know, <laughs> now we're looking at trillions of dollars of repairs um, that just haven't been done. I mean, everything from lead pipes in the cities to, um, you know, eliminating uh, freight log jams. I mean, the, the rail system's still here. It's transporting containers from China to New York City and, and beyond. So we, we need to get that up to snuff. Um, and then, then you just go through a whole list of things, updating Amtrak, high-speed rail, um, you know, water systems that are, that are, you know, 50 years out of date. You know, the electrical grid is 100 years old and, it, and it's still, this antiquated way of, of sending power. Um, so all those things are on the list. And um, then and an, an update to the telegraph in a way, it, building Wi-Fi towers, which uh, Republicans really have scoffed at. And here's a, I, I got this question the other day and it's like, it was so, it was so pointed and so relevant. It's like, what would Lincoln think about rural broadband expanding internet <laughs> yes. to, to every community? I, I said, hmm. No question, he would have loved it. He he was crazy about the telegraph. He spent most of the Civil War in the telegraph room. He loved technology. He, he would have embraced it wholeheartedly. Aren't there hidden costs when government fails to update infrastructure? You write that today the failure to update the country's infrastructure would result in $7 trillion in lost business sales, $3.9 trillion in losses to the U.S. GDP, 2.5 American jobs lost, all by 2025. And then there were healthcare costs and lost work hours to, as well. It's pretty extensive. I mean, if you lose hours uh, from work because you can't get adequate healthcare or you don't have access to the internet or you can't travel on a road that's just, just terrible or you can't get somewhere quickly. I mean, lost hours, time is money. Um, and your health, you know, the, the healthcare infrastructure is, is terribly um, unequal and, and, and disproportionately favored towards a, a handful of places. So that, that really is on the agenda of, of, if we're going to address economic equality, we have to look at the, the total social and physical infrastructure. So it's interesting that these, these things were fought in the 1860s and yet we're fighting them again today. Uh, is it that we don't learn our lesson or that the world has changed so much that we don't see the similarities? 
Well, there's a certain amount of uh, nativism involved here, of tribalism is like, well, we have great hospitals where we live. Why should we care about rural Missouri or wherever? Um, and, it, and it's just, you know, it's, it's a question of, of people adopting the idea that Lincoln saw when he was a young man as like, well, prosperity should be a shared concept. You know, there's no reason why my little town in the middle of nowhere can't have access to New Orleans and get, you know, more money for the goods that my local constituents are producing. Uh, and, and that was a very fundamental principle that I think to some degree um, we are understanding better, but, but not to the extent where everybody signs on to the ideas like, well, you know, better highways are, are, are important. So is the infrastructure to create roads and canals and highways and railroads and, and you know, everything. And bridges are falling down. Yeah, and that's that's a that's a huge problem. I mean, I could tell you right off the top of my head bridges that should not even be used in my area uh, that take you know hundreds of thousands of vehicles a day. I mean, that's that's scary stuff. There was a big, big bridge across Mississippi in in Minneapolis that collapsed a few years ago, and it you know there was one in Italy. It's it if you don't keep up with this, the the cost of repair are are, are catastrophic. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org, is John F. Wasik. His latest book is Lincolnomics, How President Lincoln Constructed the Great American Economy, published by Diversion Books. In, in a speech that Lincoln made to the Wisconsin Agricultural Society, he brought up the concept of free labor and free enterprise, quote, the just and generous and prosperous system which opens the way for all, gives hope to all, and energy and progress and improvement of condition to all. So um, he was saying that you have to level the playing field? Well, this was one of the most powerful things that I think Lincoln ever said. And again, everybody loves to quote, uh, you know, a new birth of freedom in the Gettysburg Address as, as being the most seminal thing. But to me, this, this really was a, a siren saying, look, if you have an equal opportunity or equal access to improve your, your economic well-being, um, then, then that's, that's the most important thing about American life. And he, he put a lot of uh, really foundational thinking behind that. That includes education. That includes, you know, roads, canals, railroads, you know, and, and that was part of it. And, and then education, of course. So it's, it's really a keystone in, in thinking about, you know, what is the American dream and how do we get there? He believed that if you can own and work land free and clear, you can benefit directly and build a life for yourself. But that economic progress should be distributed as evenly as possible. Every individual should enjoy the fruits of their labor and be able to participate in democracy. That sounds rather idealistic. Well, it is. And, and of course, we haven't achieved that ideal and we're still working on it. Uh, but what was even more telling is when I started to reread the Lincoln Douglas debates, one of the first things he says, you know, is that, you know, we do have a right to earn our own bread and we should have an equal right to do it. So, you know, and, and that goes so far in, into this idea, well, why are, 
women and and people of color paid less than than white people and and you know how do we rectify that so he was talking about it uh, in the context of his political campaign but it's it's still a valid and very potent principle for us did he ever say anything about women's rights not that i could find i i think he would have embraced it um and but he didn't really talk about it that I could see in his in the archives or any of his writings. You point out that his family moved from Kentucky to Indiana in 1816, partly on account of slavery and that his parents and pastor professed anti-slavery views. But as I mentioned earlier, wasn't he slow to advocate the complete abolition of slavery? Was he just being uh, pragmatic, politically pragmatic? I believe so, because in the context of his times um, and, and to the people he was talking to, um, you know, running for Senate and then running for president, uh, keep in mind, there were four candidates uh, when he ran in 1860, um, you know, Douglas and, you know, and the Democratic Party at that time was split between a hard line of slavery and sort of a middle road, which was Douglas. And then, of course, Lincoln was like, you know, at first saying, well, well, we'll let slavery die this this death of attrition. Uh, so he, you know, it was he had a more competition on that issue. Of course, his, his Cooper Union speech really laid it out. But um, he he wanted to get elected, and and was it pragmatic for him? Of course. But then he did advocate uh, for the Emancipation Proclamation. He signed it, and then of course the Thirteenth, Fourteenth, and Fifteenth Amendments. How. Um well-known were his uh, his programs and plans for the country. Did the newspapers carry all of these stories? Oh, extensively. And and you know what was was really remarkable is that uh, he had he made sure that the, all the Lincoln Douglas debates were transcribed uh, and printed in papers across the country, uh, as well as his Cooper Union speech. Uh, and and all, a lot of his campaign speeches really ended up ended up in print. And were widely distributed. It wasn't like we see today, where they're, you know, immediately put out uh, as a news alert. But uh, they got out there, and, and people read them, and, and it added to his his stature as, as as not only a great speaker but a man of principle. We mentioned earlier that the land grant colleges uh, took land from Native Americans, so he could be uh, aware of the inequities in regard to people who've been brought here as slaves, but uh, totally oblivious to the problems of the Native Americans? I didn't find that to be true. I don't think uh, it's fair to say it was totally oblivious. Uh, he was aware of, of the issues and, and, you know, if he had not been so utterly consumed in, in, in the Civil War, I think he would have he eventually considered what the plight was of Native Americans. Uh, what I did see was that he did uh, meet with a um, Potawatomi chief. The Potawatomi had um, their land uh, annexed, you know, by the American government uh, in the Chicago area and, and beyond. And they, they had moved, you know, had been forced to move elsewhere. Uh, so there, there was this chief named Simon Polkagan who actually met with Lincoln and pressed one of his claims saying, hey, you know, we were not fairly compensated for the land that ended up in downtown Chicago. Uh, and, and Lincoln, Lincoln heard him. And, and I, I don't know that uh, he 
I didn't see any evidence that he was moving to correct the situation. I think he considered it. But again, the, the war consumed all of his energies. And uh, it became uh, a non-problem for Republican presidents that followed Teddy Roosevelt, who uh, is reported to have said the only good Indian is a dead Indian. Um, that's it's kind of shocking aspects of American history. Well, uh, you know, there's there's uh, uh, a, a very undeniable element of racism that permeates uh, American culture. I mean, you you look at the whole concept of manifest destiny, and it was basically, um, you know, white Protestant males saying, "Hey, we we're really entitled to this land, <laughs> and mm -hmm. we should take it, and we should farm it, and and it's our privilege." And uh, you 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 look back on it, and it's kind of horrifying. Uh, but that was the prevailing sentiment of, of Lincoln's century and well into their own time to some degree. On the other hand, as we pointed out earlier, he was pro-immigration. He, he was for an awful lot of things that uh, continue to be issues in our current situation. Yes. And you know what's fascinating is that, you know, we, we generally focus uh, in, in terms of history on his inaugurals, which are, are gems of, of writing and speech. Of course, the Gettysburg Address and, you know, some of his earlier speeches, but what's what's really ignored is what he said in his annual messages, which were basically the State of the Union speeches at the time. And he would outline all these things that you would never associate with Lincoln. Uh, he had a very strong uh, stance on immigration. He thought it was a great mm -hmm. idea. Uh, he wanted to have better relations with uh, Russia and China. He wanted global trade. I mean, he he was thinking about a lot of things that you would never associate with Lincoln. Um, he was, you know, very enthusiastic about, you know, creating more research. I found one letter in the archives where he actually advocated disinfectants in, in field hospitals <laughs> during the Civil War. And I was like, okay, they didn't even know about the germ theory of disease. And, and Lincoln thought it was a great idea. So there's a lot of things I, I think we'll find uh, in going through the archives of Lincoln's letters and his, his many legal cases that will continue to uh, surprise and amaze us. We have very little time left, but I just want to talk about what you've written in your afterword. Uh, you suggest that if Lincoln were alive today, he would support reducing college tuition, expanding the social safety net, and upgrading the nation's infrastructure to combat climate change? I think he would. And and I base this, and I know a lot of historians are going to uh, be apoplexic over this, but you know, if, if we're going to take uh, the very basics of, say, the 14th Amendment uh, equal treatment, then we have to consider these things. Uh, they, they do fall into the idea that infrastructure is is really linked to economic destiny. It's very important. Uh, it, of course, climate change is an existential threat. I mean, nobody was thinking about global warming in the 19th century, much less the 20th. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, you know, when you when you look at the scope of how climate change affects everything, from you know bridges to river systems to uh, nearly anything you can think of, the electrical grid, for example. Uh, those changes need to be not only considered, but 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 actually completed 
uh, to to deal with this this continuing threat. John Wasik, as I said, has published 19 books. He's uh, his writings appeared in the New York Times, Forbes, the Wall Street Journal. He was named an Illinois Rhodes Scholar for the Illinois Humanities Council. And uh, he's the author of the book that we've been discussing, Lincolnomics, How President Lincoln Constructed the Great American Economy, published by Diversion Books. What a great pleasure it's been talking with you. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you, Leonard. I, I really enjoyed our talk. and. Um, if you do buy the book, I, I urge people to approach your local bookseller or your local independent bookseller, or you can get it anywhere, but I, I love to promote uh, independence as well. So thank you so much for your, your, your great questions. And thank you. Uh, and that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're new to our program and would like to hear more, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are available. And there are links to all of our past shows at LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. And if you'd like to reach me directly, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off, I need to take just a minute to ask you to support the station. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to step up right now and, and, and make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to keep the unique in-depth content we bring you on this program coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. You know, WBAI depends 100% on listener donations. So if you tune in regularly to Leonard Lopate at Large, or even if you've just discovered our in-depth one-hour interviews, why not step up right now by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to help keep the show in this historic station that brings it to you. The only one on, in the New York radio dial that's entirely listener-sponsored Help us to keep it on the air. To everyone who's already supporting this station in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, thank you so much. And I hope that you can join us for tomorrow's show when Bob Henley will join us to discuss the news behind the news. We'll see you then. <laughs>